I'm going to open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Uh, God, we are so grateful to be gathered here this morning, uh, to be able to sit under the teaching of your word, and to be able to gather in fellowship with one another to worship you, and and later today to take communion together and and to worship you. Uh, Lord, we pray that even now you'd be at work purifying our hearts and preparing us for worship, preparing our minds, that we'd be girding up the loins of our mind for action to, to serve you and worship you, both in the context of our corporate gathering, and then as we disperse, Lord, Uh, And we go out into the world. Uh, We want to be able, like we'll talk about today, to make a defense for the hope that we have within us and and to give reasons and explain from the scriptures why we believe what we do. We thank you for the great privilege we have to worship you and to be called by your name. We pray you bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin this course, uh, I'm just curious uh, maybe you guys just end up here because you always come to the book room, uh, but perhaps you're actually interested in uh, apologetics. And I'm, I'm curious, what would be some of your motivation uh, about why you'd want to grow, whether you ended up here on accident or intentionally, why you'd want to grow in your ability or understanding of apologetics? What would be a personal motivation that you have? Yeah, to, to be better equipped to engage and share the gospel. Any any other reasons why? I mean, I would say the same thing, but getting a little more specific. Like, you know, some close friends who are Mormons, and I've had some discussions about Mormonism versus Christianity, so mm-hmm. kind of digging a little more into yeah. how to have that discussion yeah. specifically. Yeah. Ooh. See, even now, this is good, because I, like, I haven't even thought about engaging specifically, like, all of those are different apologetic conversations with, with Muslims, that's an apologetic conversation, and Mormons, and uh, typically we, we generally frame the conversation by default with the secular atheists, but we have all sorts of different apologetic engagements uh, that we need to be mindful of. Good. Uh, anything else? Even apologetics with other Christians, mm-hmm. which I find most difficult, like all our Bethel friends mm-hmm. all over town, mm-hmm. I'm like, how do I talk to them about these things, because they... Yeah. I wish I had a book. I do have a book. <laughs> 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 but I'm like, I want, like, your bullet. Yeah. All it's like, it's all going to end in prosperity. This is yeah. here. Yeah. Like, I don't know, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good. Well, uh, if, if you were to... I'm opening with some questions here. If you were to give a, uh, a definition, kind of more formal idea, trying to de- define what is apologetics... How, how would you define that? It's not apologizing. <laughs> yeah, I, I was joking with Grace. I'll just stand up and say to someone like, Sam, apologize. Uh, <laughs> to do apologetics. Uh, but So what, what is apologetics? Well, what do we mean by that word? I mean, you know, like Paul basically was doing apologetics with the Athenians, wasn't he? You know, mm-hmm. it's like reasoning from their culture to kind of explain the, the veracity of the, of the gospel message, you know, like, so it's a reasoned and intelligent, um, I don't want to say defense, except maybe in the, in the, in the sense of, like, a, a courtroom presents a case mm-hmm. that something is factual mm-hmm. in a reasoned and, and uh, systematic way mm-hmm. so that anybody who's got a sense of reason can hear it and go, huh, that's pretty airtight. Yeah, so uh, so there is the apologetics, comes from the word in Greek, apologia, which is uh, a defense. It really is a defense, uh, a reasoned you know, argument. You're making a case for the truth claims that Christianity is making and therefore that we're making in the name of Christ. And we're making an, an apologia. That's the way it comes through apologetics. Uh, it's a defense for the faith. Now, that's a more formal definition. But when you stop and think of an apology, an apology is generally considered, I'm sorry I've hurt your feelings, I'm mm-hmm. sorry that I offended you, I'm sorry that, you know, more of a, um, a confession of empathy or sympathy mm-hmm. or something, where apologetics is more defending. Yeah, so, yeah, so we are defending not 
we're not apologizing for what we believe, or, um, but now that would be a, a a rational providing a rational defense for the faith is kind of apologetic simply. Uh, but what are the kinds of things now in, in the connotations of our mind that we sometimes think of when we think about doing apologetics? I'm kind of curious, what are what comes to your mind? Oh, yeah, arguing. Okay. You know, arguing for the faith or it could go too far. Yeah. Anything else? I was thinking just an intellectual discussion. Yes. About what you believe and why you believe it. Yeah, and so I think oftentimes we can think of apologetics, like, and we think of PhD scientists, uh, Ken Ham uh, debating Bill Nye the Science Guy, or we think of William Lane Craig debating X, Y, and we think of long you know, three-hour formal debates, and this, it's this highly exclusive niche thing that only somebody who's highly trained in a specific discipline, and they can do apologetics, but, you know, that it's not necessarily something that is accessible for average Christians. And then, alongside of that, we also think the tone of apologetics often as combative, <laughs> uh, argumentative, uh, um, and so, yeah, we, we often have these ideas of apologetics which make it seem like it might be outside the bounds for us personally to in, engage in. But I would, I would push back on that. I would say these are not primarily the kinds of things that the Bible has in mind when it talks about defending the faith. My main point this morning is that I don't really think that any of this is what Scripture has in mind when we're thinking or talking about apologetics, uh, because the result is that, like I said, we think it's for like the, the SEAL Team 6 of Christianity, this highly elite you know, <laughs> squad that will go in and do this work that nobody else is trained to do. And I'm grateful for highly trained scientists and philosophers uh, dedicated to defending the faith in highly academic settings. But you know, the critical, the key text that comes to mind in apologetics is 1 Peter 3, I don't even know what verse it is, maybe 16 or something, I'm not sure. But Peter says, you know, he encourages the believers to always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And Peter's not thinking that the congregation is going to go study Aristotle and Plato, and become experts in the classics so they can go to Mars Hill and annihilate the pagans there. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. And if you just look at the context, so uh, starting in verse Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Sorry, I don't have that up here, but uh, if you have your Bible, you, you can follow or follow on your phones. So, so this is the, the key text for apologetics. Always being ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. And that, that word defense is apologia. And, but he starts in verse 8, earlier in the context. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on and cites Psalm 34, and then continues in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, for a reason, for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, than if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, if we just look out in the broader context of 1 Peter chapter 3, it's one of suffering for righteousness' sake returning good for evil and blessing for reviling and holding fast to and submitting to Christ even when it causes you to suffer and undergo hardship and affliction for your uh, submission to Christ as Lord. And so the flavor of the question is more, 
Why bother with following Jesus if it makes life harder? Why follow Christ if it causes you hardship? That's the answer. That's the question that Peter is getting at. That your answer in giving a hope, giving a reason for the hope that's within you. Uh, and that answer is not typically going to surround you know, the decay rate of carbon-14. It's going to surround robust and experiential understanding and ability to explain and articulate the gospel. Saying to these people that are like, why would you continue to follow Jesus when it's bringing you into affliction and hardship and, and you're, <laughs> you lose your job? That's the context of, I'm giving a reason for the hope that's within me. It's that, you know, I don't think you realize how sinful I am. I don't think you realize that I was destined for destruction. I don't think you realize that I was bound for eternity in hell, that I had done nothing to deserve anything but God's wrath and His judgment. And in His mercy, instead of judging me, He came to me in His Son, and He suffered in my stead. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for me, and then died in my place and rose again. This is why I have hope, because I have a Lord who has taken my sin and given me His righteousness. Yes. So, and so when we when we think like that, he's he's taken me out of the domain of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of his beloved son. It doesn't matter what kind of hardships it causes for me to follow Christ. It doesn't matter uh, what the culture thinks or, or if I suffer hardship. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to give him my obedience and devotion. I think that if you look at the wider context of First Peter three, that's more what Peter is talking about, giving that kind of. Uh, reason for the hope that's within you. And this puts the apologetics that we're talking about into an interesting light, especially if we we're trying to uh, witness or give a defense to people who are convinced about this, like, happy, happy, everything's going great, Jesus, that mm-hmm. we're getting from places like that. Mm-hmm. The prosperity yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. So, no, the Jesus I'm going to tell you about says pick up your cross. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... And so I, I do still think that there is a helpful place for particular arguments and defenses to objections that we encounter in the culture, and we'll talk about those later in the course. But we need to make sure that we have a biblical foundation. Before we do that, that we have a biblical foundation for apologetics in general, that we're framing it in a way that's in light of other biblical truth. So first off, what is, what is our goal in apologetics? What's, what's the ultimate thing that we're aiming at? To highlight the truth about the gospel. Yes, good. And then, and then what, even that, as a means to, to a greater end? Salvation. Yeah, we want people, we're not just trying to win arguments, uh, but we're trying to win people to the Lord. And I, I think that Generally, this is my at least impression, is that conservative evangelical Christians can often feel like we're under siege from the culture, uh, that, that we're being attacked uh, by the world, and, and that we're often criticized or just kind of slandered as being any number of things, but uh, among those would be, you know, anti scientific, anti intellectual. Uh, anti just modern whatever uh, and sometimes we come to the table already feeling like we're, like we're, we're getting attacked like I, I gotta defend myself uh, and also like I have to vindicate myself I have to vindicate that I'm not dumb just because I'm a Christian I'm not dumb because I believe in the flood I'm not dumb because I believe in the resurrection of Christ or uh, creation uh, and, and we just come with an already defensive posture like as if we need to vindicate ourselves. Uh, and, and as soon as we're thinking about vindicating ourselves, we're, we have to be very careful. Because if it's about us, and about our reputation, uh, and trying to prove that we're not dumb, we're not anti-intellectual, or something like that, then we're already getting off on the wrong foot. Because the whole apologetic engagement is not about us. It's about engaging the people in this world with the truth of the gospel for their sake and for honoring the Lord as honoring Christ as holy and then and graciously and kindly 
lovingly extending the good news of the gospel, you know, in a way that's framed with rational and systematic and intelligent and winsome to the people around us. But it's not about us, and it's not about our reputation or what people think about us as Christians. So yeah, we've all heard that statement that we can win the argument and lose the person. Uh, And if our reasoning and our argumentation is motivated by pride in any way, uh, we're not going to be advancing the cause of Christ. Uh, We're just going to be advancing our own agenda that's about us and self-promotion. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. So th- this week is kind of the what is apologetics, and next week we're just going to be talking still very broadly about the, the who and the how, like our disposition and things like that. So our goal is to win people to Christ. Now, if our goal is to win people to Christ and that they would be saved, then we need to also frame the discussion of apologetics at least two other doctrines. We we need to know something about people that we want to be saved, and we need to know something about salvation if we want them to be saved. So, a biblical approach to apologetics must be informed by anthropology, the study of man, and a biblical soteriology, the study of salvation. So, and that brings us to the limits of apologetics. So, as we think about biblical anthropology, what the Bible says about man, how does that, how might that inform our use and our understanding of apologetics? What are some things that the Bible teaches teaches us about man in his present condition? That we're dead, that we're all are, are sinful. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that that, that points to the need for a savior. Mm-hmm. Anything else? They're interested, mankind is interested in his own agenda, in his own pride, and his own attainment of mm-hmm. life. Yeah. But then also we're created by God. Yeah, that's good, and I, I didn't uh, include that here. So so a few things. Oh. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are falling to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned? Yeah, yeah, right there. (laughs) So that's the verse that Raymond just read. So 1 Corinthians 2.14. It's frustrating. uh, That man rejects, the natural man rejects spiritual things. Natural man needs illumination by the Spirit to open our eyes, to soften our hearts to spiritual truth. Colossians 1.21, Romans 8.7 also tell us that that man is hostile to God, uh, that man does not submit to God's law. Uh, so I'll, I'll just read it actually for you. Colossians 1.21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, uh, Romans 8.7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me backpedal a little bit, um, coming back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, Just to be clear, when it says that the natural man is not able to understand the the things of of God or the things of the Spirit, it's not that they're unable to understand the the plain meaning of the text. For example, they can read, you know, an unbeliever can read the book of Matthew and see that Jesus taught that he was the Son of God. They can see that Jesus was crucified for the, the sins of many, and that he said, I, I did not come for myself, but to give my life. I did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, the unbeliever can read all that and understand that, okay, Jesus died, that he rose again. These are the claims that Christianity is making. You know, there are unregenerate New Testament scholars who know the content of Scripture very well. And it's even possible that they, in some sense, believe the content of the Scripture. But the last piece of the puzzle is is to feel the weight and the significance and and the application to our soul of the Scripture. So I would say that illumination has more to do with the significance of the text than than merely the, the meaning of the text. Although certainly the Spirit can help us to understand as well, but it's more to do with 
the the significance and the the relevance of the text than, than merely the meaning of the text. So we just don't want to think that you know the Bible is not a mystical book that that cannot be understood, but but that we reject the things that that it says and, and we are hostile to them. Uh, do you still want to... Oh, I was just going to say that I had um, a brother-in-law that came to me and asked me, he says, you study the Bible a lot. I have a friend that's really intelligent. He's got lots of PhDs behind him, you know, letters behind his name. And, and he's been reading the Bible and he asked me, he says, well, what in here teaches me that this is true? And he says, I want you to give me a scripture that I can give to him. And I said, I can't give you one, especially if he's read the whole Bible. He needs the Holy Spirit to illuminate to him mm-hmm. what it means personally to him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a particular spirit, scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so we need the fancy word, the self-authenticating witness of the Spirit. Um, if the scripture, as we believe, is the highest authority, there's no other thing that we can go to uh, and... and verify and validate that oh, scriptures are ultimately authoritative, uh, because then we, we've actually just undermined the ultimate authority of the scriptures. Um, however, we'll, we'll keep keep going. The last one, I think, that I have here is, is Ephesians 2, uh, 1-3. You know, Paul teaches that you were dead in the uh, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, So these are just a few uh, central things that the Bible teaches us about man in his present condition, that we reject spiritual things, we're hostile to God, and that man is spiritually dead. And so why is biblical anthropology particularly the doctrine of depravity, relevant for how we are thinking about apologetics? I feel like our mindset and our emotions with it, I know my grandma once told me, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Mm -hmm. So if we come in with a sense of pride, I think we're already on the wrong Mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly we want to be approaching other people we're approaching sinners as sinners in need of grace, and that informs how we share. Anything else? Well, what one? Oh, I was just going to say, I think that compassion is super important on, on account of the fact that, um, like, I'm a I'm a I'm a beggar that found some bread, trying to tell another beggar that doesn't know he's a beggar, mm-hmm. which is absolutely convinced that he's a, the richest guy on the block, basically. Mm-hmm. You know. And he can't even see his own depravity. He can't even see how bereft he is. You know, so you know, having that having that knowledge, knowing where it was that I was when when I got found, uh, you know, and and being able to see that in others mm-hmm. you know, when when I'm coming to, coming about trying to share, what <laughs> you know that you don't have bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and the other thing that I think is really helpful to make sure it's, it's clear in the forefront of our minds, especially uh, if you plunge into apologetics and, and you think that, you know, I'm just going to get all equipped and I'm going to get all my artillery ready, get my ammo, and then I'm just going to come and mow people down and then they're going to submit to the claims of Christ. Uh, well, <laughs> actually they won't uh, because if we have a biblical anthropology, we realize that the most fundamental problem is not informational. Uh, the reason that the world does not worship the one true God is not merely because they haven't heard the best arguments. Uh, Paul makes it very clear, and, and we'll talk about this in, in a few weeks, uh, that what can be known of God is plain to them. It, it, it's been shown to them in creation. And so the fundamental problem is not that man does not know the truth, but that man is spiritually dead and hostile to the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness as Paul says. Uh, And so if that's true, then we realize that we're not going to convert people simply by having persuasive arguments and good reasoning. And this also brings us to the discussion of about soteriology. What does it mean to be saved and how are people saved? 
So the, the real kicker is that even if we do persuade someone of the existence of God, we haven't made them a Christian. Uh, even if we persuade someone of the historicity of the resurrection and persuade them that the Bible offers the most comprehensive and accurate worldview to explain the world that we live in, we still haven't made a Christian. <laughs> yeah, the Pharisees, yeah, the Pharisees had a biblical worldview. Lots of nominal Christians today have a biblical worldview. But Jesus didn't say, well, unless you become a Christian theist, you will never enter the kingdom of God. No, you must be born again. You must be regenerated, made a new creation. Uh, and that goes beyond anything that we can accomplish merely by reasoning and good arguments. So if we're thinking of apologetics primarily in terms to ministering to other people, we see that all of these truths are kind of brought together in 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. to So again, I didn't put any of these up. So if, if you want to flip there, 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6 to says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we'd commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So apologetics is not tricks and gimmicks and, you know, clever ways to get people to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, no, by, by simple open statement of the truth, we'd commend ourselves to everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In the case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, notice that the gospel is veiled to some people. Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. So the glory of the gospel is there. It is shining. But some people don't see it. But like A.W. Tozer would say, that even if the whole world immediately became blind, the sun would shine no brighter. Okay? Just because people don't see the light that is shining doesn't mean it, that it's not bright and that it's not shining. So, objectively, the truth of Christianity and the glory of Christ is revealed in the gospel. The problem is that subjectively, people are spiritually dead and blind, so they don't see what is, in fact, objectively there. And then verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's illumination. Uh, that's God bringing light in flooding our souls with the light the gospel. So if you're a believer today, it is because this happened in your life at some point. God said, let there be light in your soul. And in the midst of your spiritual darkness and rebellion, you saw the beauty and the goodness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Not merely that God exists, although it might have been founded on that. It certainly was predicated upon that. Not merely that Jesus was raised from the dead, but the glory of Christ, the righteous, dying for sinners and rising from the dead and, and believing that. Uh, and God does that work in the heart of people who are dead in their sins and in rebellion against Him. And so if you believe these things about human nature, if you believe these things about salvation... It's going to inform the way we think about and do apologetics. Uh, honestly, it's going to temper our expectations for rational arguments. We know that ultimately these people must be born again. That they must be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So ultimately, the power to save is going to be found 
you know, not in how smart you are, not in how clever you are, not in how rhetorically, you know, your rhetorical prowess, but in the gospel. And so we don't want to abandon our, our centrality and our affirmation in the, that it's the gospel that saves people. And so you might hear all this and say, well, if man is dead in their trans- sins and transgressions, and if ultimately it's the gospel that saves, why even bother? <laughs> why bother at all with arguments and, and trying to reason with people uh, to bring someone to Christ and work through their, their questions if, if it's really just objections that they have because they're hostile to God. So, so let me put that question to you. Why, why even bother with apologetics if that's the case with human nature and salvation? Why bother with arguments, reasoning, engagement on cultural issues, and all that kind of stuff? Why bother? Because we don't know who the Holy Spirit is calling. Mm-hmm. So if we're willing to share amongst whomever, whenever the opportunity arises, um, we don't know. Mm-hmm. If, if we just say, why bother, then yeah. who's going to share the gospel yeah. with those who the Spirit is calling? Yeah, I guess, I mean, why not Why not merely say, I'm just going to share the gospel, you know, just very succinctly that, you know, man is, man's in sin, Christ died for, for sinners, uh, he rose from the dead, and if you believe, you'll be justified and made right with God. Uh, but why engage on cultural issues and, and morality and, you know, the, I'm saying those kinds of things, why bother with those issues? Okay. And it the uh, uh, natural man also like like us is seeking truth in any way. You know, they're trying to figure out you know what they're made of and where what they're going for, and that's the the great part of this uh, is that that in discerning truth, you know, you're able to. To a person who is an unbeliever, uh, these truths that can be identified, that they recognize, that they can recognize, can crack that sinful nature and uh, can actually bring a person toward uh, toward toward the Lord mm-hmm. and salvation. So it's it, it is a it, it's an intellectual conversation, but but it, it's. It's in seeking truth and recognizing truth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that are blind still see that truth. You know, mm-hmm. the very basic concept that man is sinful in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, people think that man is generally good. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, uh, uh, if that's identified, they, they, uh, uh, res- they, they, have, they can't deny that fact. Mm-hmm. If they seriously look at that, yeah, and the spirit, terrible part. Well, so for a function of my confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life, that I would do what He told me to do, as far as go tell other people mm-hmm. what, what you know, what you know of me, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that you've heard of me and been taught of yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, so I guess in the question, I'm, I'm distinguishing a little bit between strictly evangelism and then, and then kind of a, wa- a wider body of apologetics. But, but I would still say, even this, like you said, no, it's biblical. We're, we're commanded to engage the, the world around us. One example of this is Acts 17, if you want to flip there, or you can just listen. Acts 17, verses 1 to 3. Uh, and this might not strike us immediately as apologetics, but just look at what Paul is doing here. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Ap- Apollonia, they came to Th- Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three days, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Christ, to suffer and rise from the dead. So Paul is doing apologetics. And this is 95% of what apologetics 
ends up being when you actually talk with people. You're reasoning with them from the scriptures. You're explaining the scriptures and trying to prove who is Christ is, who he claims to be, uh, and, and the wider truth claims of Christianity. Uh, that they're not only necessary uh, for coherence and meaning in the world, uh, but that they're also good and, and for our, our flourishing. And, and that last part, uh, as far as like uh, that the truth claims of Christianity are both relevant and necessary for coherence and meaning and uh, good for our, our flourishing, that might sound daunting, but it's really just all of this is just knowing your Bible, uh, understanding your Bible, knowing what it says, and being able to articulate it to others. Uh, because the most common objections uh, are not things that require a philosophy degree. They're things that require you to understand your Bible. Can you explain why the Bible teaches that sincere devotees of other religions will not ultimately end up in heaven? Uh, these are the kinds of apologetic you conversations you have. Why is Christianity so exclusive? Can you explain the the presence of suffering in the world and and the pain that both individuals experience and and just broadly uh, characterizes the world? Can you explain what makes Christianity unique compared to other religions? Uh, And that doesn't mean you need to know in depth every other religion, uh, but what is prominent, what distinguishes Christianity? I don't know. They just, my computer's fine. I don't know. Well, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, You know, can you explain how Jesus is different than every other man in human history? Can you explain a biblical worldview towards homosexuality? Notice, these aren't philosophy questions. These are just Bible questions uh, that, that you point, you, like Paul, you reason with people from the scriptures. And so if you want to be well-equipped to do apologetics, I would say just study the Word. (laughs) Become acquainted with what the Bible teaches and seek to grow in your ability to articulate that. That's what apologetics is going to be for the uh, the most part. Like uh, Jordan said, it's engaging with a Mormon friend uh, or it's engaging with people with other views of of Christianity and what the essence of the, the gospel might be. Well, what you need is just a thorough, well-founded understanding of this light. And so to be sure, there in Acts 17, Paul's Jewish context is informing uh, the way, certainly, that he's engaging with them. Later in the same chapter, he's going to be engaging with pagans on Mars Hill, and that's going to shape the discussion, the way that he's framing it. But he's still just engaging them with the Scriptures, reasoning from the Scriptures, explaining why it's necessary uh, for there to be a Christ who, who saves sinners from their sin. And so, I would ask and encourage Christians to, to think of apologetics primarily in those terms. And yes, are there certain conversations with certain people that it would be helpful to, and to have external knowledge uh, beyond the scriptures? Uh, yeah, th- there are some, and Praise the Lord that there are some people who are specifically trained in those disciplines to be able to answer those questions well. But but you don't need to know everything to say anything. You can still speak with what knowledge you have, and it doesn't need to be absolutely exhaustive and comprehensive. You can engage people simply and directly. Yeah. I was told once that God can't recall that you're lying something you haven't put there. And so that's why I read scripture over and study it and whatnot. And so it's there. And then we're also told, don't fear what you're going to say when you stand before man, that if God will give it to you. Mm-hmm. But again, if I haven't put it there to be recalled, it's harder, you know. Yeah. Harder to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, in one sense, uh, we are, you know, to use that kind of analogy, you know, giving the Spirit. Ammo, I don't want to say ammo, but resources, you know, to, to work with and as to call to memory and as we study it. But I would just say the primary thing you need is an understanding of the scriptures and what God says concerning himself, Christian worldview. Uh, those are, are the, the essence of what we need 
to engage people around us. The second reason I think apologetics is still legitimate, even though uh, it's the gospel itself that it will ultimately save, is that God uses, and uh, this is what I think you were getting at, God uses means towards his ends. Uh, And sometimes the means of a rational argument confronts people with the truth claims of Christianity, and they're forced to, to reckon with it, and they're forced to engage with Christianity in ways that they might otherwise not. So some arguments might be preparatory. These arguments are, are tilling the soil and preparing people. It forces them to engage with the truth claims of Christianity. Uh, oftentimes, you know, people just out of hand, they're not going to think about, they're not going to consider Christianity or the gospel because in their mind, Christianity demeans women. Or Christianity is anti-scientific. Christianity is narrow-minded. Or all Christians are bigots. All sorts of things that they might say, well, I, I know that this is true, so I don't even need to think about it. And then you, know, you might say, well, I don't know, is Christianity anti-scientific? <laughs> uh, and you have that conversation. Why do you think that? What, what's the basis upon your scientific worldview? You know, this is why Christians... You know, many scientists have been Christians throughout the ages. Uh, that Christianity actually furnishes one with a robust and comprehensive worldview in order to do science. So you might have that discussion. Not that that's going to save them. And so, oh, okay, I guess scientific Christianity isn't incompatible with doing good science. But then at least it might open the door for other discussions. Yeah, also goes back to you know, First Peter. It's, it's, I'm reading it again now. I have a brotherly love and sympathy. You know, it's going to. So, this whole time, just been thinking, like, they're already saved, right? Like, whoever's going to be saved is already saved. Well, well. Hold on. Okay. Let me finish my thought. Okay, okay. Okay. But it still needs us to engage and to um, spread the like, you know, spread the gospel to them. Mm hmm. But, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's at, I think discipleship is, right? And I think, just going back to the, the fact that you're engaging in the arguments of science or of philosophy within your ability, you're doing it with compassion. Mm-hmm. You're doing it by love, with humility. Um, it's going to... It's, it's going to make an impact, mm-hmm. right? Like the whole the whole world's blind; they can't see the sun. They can still feel the warmth of the sun, mm-hmm. right? And hopefully, they can feel the warmth of the sun coming through you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. You know, like you know, how will they call on him and whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in whom they have not heard? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so it's, yeah. So so I'm all. I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is that you know the, the question of if somebody says um, you know I don't I don't believe in Christianity because it's just too exclusive for me that engagement on is Christianity you know exclusive or, or why is it exclusive um, that's not necessarily a direct gospel conversation where I, I might say well you know friend your worldview is just as exclusive as my worldview. Because you think I'm wrong just in the same way that I think your worldview is wrong. Uh, you know, if you, you're a, a pluralist, well, we'll talk about this later, but this is just an example. Uh, pluralism, you know, it says that, you know, or a, uh, if you think that every worldview is equally legitimate, if you say that, well, your worldview says that if any worldview makes exclusive claims, uh, by which they're saying other worldviews aren't legitimate, well, there's conflict there. These worldviews are mutually exclusive. And, you know, the, the, there's a worldview of, of, like, tolerance, where, like, that's the, the ultimate highest, the greatest good. And, and as soon as I say, well, I, I don't think that your worldview is legitimate, or I don't think your lifestyle is uh, equally good or equally honoring to, to God then suddenly, you know, they're not okay with that worldview. That, that is an unacceptable worldview for them. And so in just exposing that, okay, we both have exclusivity here. We're both making claims that are incompatible with other worldviews. Um, so it's just a matter of what exclusivity, you know. So I'm just pointing out that that's one conversation. 
that you're, you're not directly engaging them with the gospel there. But you might be preparing, okay, they have an out-of-hand objection that now they can't, you're kicking out pegs from under them, <laughs> that, that they insulate themselves from Christianity and they're insulating themselves from the truth of the gospel because they have all these other reasons. Or like, Christianity demeans women. And you're like, okay, well, is that true? But they might not even hear the gospel because they, they've got this wall up. And, and so you might need to deal with that wall. Say, okay, well, can we, can we make a hole in this wall and then talk about the gospel after? <laughs> so that's what I would say. And they don't need to be exclusive. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be like either I want to talk about whether or not morality is transcendent, objective reality. And so there's a discussion you know, about whether morality is objective or just subjective, changing, and cultural. Well, that's an apologetic discussion. But then can I talk about after and and through that discussion that, yes, there is objective morality in the world because there is a lawgiver and you have violated the lawgiver and the laws that he has made and you are accountable to him. And because of that, you need forgiveness and redemption. That's what I mean. Like, of course, yeah, we we are called to go into the world and engage people with the gospel. But sometimes we need to have these other conversations. You know, we need to deal with peripheral objections so that sometimes we can get to the central objections uh, that they might have to the gospel. Also, when sharing the gospel, sometimes those questions that they ask or that they bring up are sidelined. And in a class that I was in, it says, well, that's an excellent question. Is it okay if we table that for mm-hmm. a bit and, and let's continue on this and then we'll get back to that? Yeah. And, you know, because, and we can come back to it, but a lot of times I found that that's no longer a question. It was just a roadblock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, uh, well, first expose apologetics, you know, Ravi Zachariah. Mm-hmm. And he always said, um, you're not there to defend, you you question the questioner. Mm-hmm. It's because everybody has these preset ideas about, you know, who God is and what they believe and what they think. But in asking the questions, you just allow the spirit to... Uh, work on that person's mind and, go, and rethink uh, what they thought was solid, like mm-hmm. the hypothesis of an evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody thought that was locked in, but if you start looking, questioning those issues, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's miles of bullet holes in, mm-hmm. in the whole thinking. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, Oh, I forgot. Uh, I was like, oh, I haven't been advancing my slides, but that's why. Um, yeah, so the, the last thing I was going to mention here, I'm, I'm clearly not going to finish everything I had today, but so number one, apologetics is biblical. I, I think we, we see people engaging or reasoning from the scriptures on, on various things oftentimes. But also, God uses means to accomplish his ends. And thirdly, that apologetics can also be used to fortify our own faith. Uh, so we don't want to act as if we're above the need, you know, that we never ever have questions, that we never ever run into issues that we get stumped on. Uh, or maybe we see things and we hear things in the, in the culture around us and we think, well, I, I really don't know. And, and maybe that doesn't really bother you, but maybe it does. Uh, maybe it creates quite a bit of turmoil in your soul of how to reconcile these things. And similarly to how someone is saved, uh, ultimately your faith cannot rest upon apologetics. You, know, you cannot rest your faith in argumentation and in, in rational defenses for the truth of Christianity. Uh, ultimately, your faith must rest upon the person of Christ himself. Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and that he is not just a historical figure, but that he's, he's your Lord and your Savior, that Christ gave himself for you, uh, and, and that you, you take him, as embrace him as your own. So you must have that, the light of the glory of Christ revealed to you. That, that must happen. But 
these arguments and whether it's theistic proofs or many different issues that apologetics engages with can be helpful and they can buttress our own faith. We don't need to act like we, uh, it's impossible for Christians to have serious doubts uh, regarding their faith. Sometimes you know, there might be real seasons of darkness and, and doubt in the heart of a genuine believer. You know, in God's kindness, that's not a place where I've often found myself. But sometimes I do have the, the thought, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it enters to my mind, like, what if everything I believe is wrong? You know, like, what if it's all, what if I just totally got it wrong? What if I'm only a Christian because I was born in America and I was given a Christian worldview as a kid and then I just kind of later adopted that as my own because that was what I defaulted to because I have maybe religious inclinations. And maybe... Maybe the atheist is right. Well, what if we do... So good. <laughs> yeah. but, but as far as the truth, like, is it... Is a, and then, you know, honestly, I think about, like, peacocks. And I think about fish and birds with the most crazy, sophisticated, crazy, elaborate, and just beautiful designs that are so symmetrical. Like, I'm a human being. I'm part of very creative species, uh, you know, we are, we are very intelligent. It's like, I cannot make those things. Uh, and you're telling me that that just happened by random chance, like, and, like, I cannot make something that symmetrical and that beautiful. Like, I just can't believe that that just happened. And uh, my soul, is, my faith is buttressed as I think about, like, the, the feathers of peacocks. And it sounds silly, but it's biblical. Uh, we see the glory of God in the things that are made. And other things that can be more significant for believers. So, so those are just a few reasons uh, why I would say we don't need to merely say, you know, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, and say, well, then I'm not going to engage anyone about anything other than specifically, you know, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, no, I, I think there is a place to still engage people about morality and whether sexism and, and transgender, whatever, all, all the issues, there's, there's reoccurring issues in apologetics like suffering, human suffering, you know, does God exist, human suffering, uh, these kinds of things that in every generation, those are going to be issues. Uh, and then there's things specific to our culture and our time, like engaging with homosexuality and transgender issues or women and all, all the different cultural things that are living in a post-truth culture, things like this. Uh, whether or not truth is objective, it can still be helpful. There are some other things I had here, but maybe I'll, I'll come back to it next week. Maybe we won't. <laughs> but does anybody have any comments or questions right before we close? All right. <laughs> uh, just that I have found that apologetics, you know, me questioning my faith, too, uh, allows me to come back to the Scriptures and affirm uh, my